Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is June 18th, 2014, and this is episode 1370 of the Survival Podcast. And boy, do I have a good one for you today and a different one. I've got something we've never covered before, and it's got me too flippin' excited about the concept of maybe having a permaethos farm with, uh, with a little different livestock on it someday. I'm talking about bison. I don't know if they're right for West Virginia, but as I think about Permaethos 2 and 3 and 4, I have some feelings that there might be bison in our future. Um, the guy that has me thinking that way is a really cool guy. Uh, his name is Tim Frazier. And it turns out he only lives about an hour, hour and 15 minutes north of me in a place called Greenville, Texas. And he is one of probably the most informed people there are out there about bison. Uh, and he is uh, a small rancher, uh, personally, running uh, about six or seven bison on his property of about seven acres. But he's working with producers all over the country. When you hear what this guy is doing, you're going to realize how much of a difference one person really can make uh, in empowering entrepreneurs to do different things. And You might be looking for a bison or half a bison for yourself to stock that freezer and make some biltong with. This was a fascinating and fun interview. It really was. You're going to hear me learn some things in it where I'm like, really? You're going to even hear me at one time check out a claim he makes, not to do with bison, but with something different, because I think he's, I think he's peeing in my boot and telling me it's raining when he makes the claim, and then the claim checks out. This guy's awesome. I'll have him on in just a minute after we take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping. Let's take care of the sponsors first. Sponsor day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Hey, I'll tell you what. If you want to be taken care of, deal with a company that's veteran-owned and veteran-operated. It just seems like it works out great that way. I've joked around and said, wouldn't it be great if we put drill sergeants uh, or you know gunnery sergeants or something like that in charge of running places you know, uh, like uh, consumer-level retail establishments like Discount Tire? I mean, because you, you know they would just be on the service workers and getting things taken care of. It's just how veterans are. They, they don't have jobs. They don't have tasks. They have missions. The mission at Sawtooth Tactical is to provide you all of the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle, do it with great service and great pricing. You can learn more at sawtac.com, and you can get discounts from them in the benefits section of your MSB account if you're an MSB member. Next up, Backwoods Home Magazine. Backwoods Home is the first magazine I ever subscribed to as a grown-up adult on my own. It really is. I got out of the Army. I'd never actually subscribed to a magazine before. Stuff came to the house before I left. And while I was in the Army, I didn't even think about stuff like that. And I ended up moving to Louisville, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. I had a roommate I served in the military with. And I was in this huge city. And I was kind of broke and looking for my first job. And I tried to save money by walking places. And all was a mall about a mile away. And instead of driving there, I would walk up to the mall. And I'd walk around the mall, amuse myself, go to bookstores and things like that. And I found Backwoods Home Magazine on the bookshelf. Um, a few months later, I had a decent job. I had my own apartment, and I was coming up in the world, and I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. That was 1993, and I've been a subscriber ever since. You should be too. Backwoods Home Magazine is the magazine about liberty 
and homesteading combined into one. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com, and they also have a discount for members of the Support Brigade in the benefits section of the MSB, like many of our sponsors do. So on the MSB, hey, if you're buying stuff from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardening, and you'd like discounts on that, Join the MSB. You'll support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And if you use the discounts on things you're probably buying anyway, guess what's going to happen? You'll get more uh, than a positive return on your investment of the MSB. 50 bucks a year, 18.3 cents an episode, and military law enforcement along with Peace Corps and uh, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, anything like that. You guys qualify for a service discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line before, not after you join, before you join. And uh, give me one or two sentences about your service, and I'll respond back to you with a discount code so you can save money on your membership. If you're already a member and you never got that discount, about renewal time, get in touch with me and we'll hook you up. All right, on to our history segment. I have a, uh, a brief one for you. Today, there's, there's three really good ones. Uh, there's a section on the Hundred Years' War, the Massacre, Massacre of Le Mans, uh, a missing generation caused by the Black Death, caused by choice, and Mongols, Tamerlane murder score 20 million. Uh, this is the one I decided to read, and it was a hard decision to pick which one today. I, this is a day that I really think, if you want to get a feel for what it was like in the year 1370, get over to TSP Wiki, use the link in the show notes, and, and read this one for yourself. It won't take that long. Uh, the stuff on the generation missing, I may cover in a future show using it as material because it's so interesting. But there's a, there's a point I like to make at times, and boy, does this one make it for me. Mongols, Tamerlane, murder score 20 million. It may not look like it now, but Tamerlane is controlling a very large part of Southwest Asia. He has set up a con above himself as a figurehead. But in reality, Tamerlane is, a run, is running the show. Tamerlane's empire now includes parts of modern-day Uzbekistan, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Turkey, China, and even part of Russia. To this point, he has slaughtered 15 to 20 million people, literally leaving piles of skulls along the road. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us, Tamerlane has taken a bite out of the western part of Chikati Khanate. He is calling himself the rightful successor of Chikate, which is one of the other Khans. He is attempting to reunite the Mongol Empire. He will nearly succeed, but that effort will die with him. So this is a guy that decided, hey, let's this, this Mongol Empire, the hordes and all, let's put this back together and get it going again. And did a pretty good job. And at this point... He's, uh, he's killed somewhere between 15 and 20 million people. And guys, he's not done yet. This guy is going to live uh, until 1405, making him 68 years old. Once again, not everybody died when they were 12 in the Middle Ages the way that they would like you to believe. My reason for choosing this. When people keep pointing to government as the answer, I always point something out. If I made a list of the... Hundred people who are the largest mass murderers in the history of the world, every single one of them, and this guy'd be on it, would have used the power of government to commit murder. But I want you to hear this man's own words from his legacy, what he thinks about himself after murdering 15 to 20 million people and then not being done for another 30 years. Alright? This is what Tamor, also known as Tamerlane, thinks about himself uh, in one of his conquests, the conquest of Aleppo. I am not a man of blood, 
And God is my witness that in all my wars I have never been the aggressor and that my enemies have always been the authors of their own calamity. That's government. It's not us. It's them. We had to kill them. We had to preserve what we have. The state must live. Control must exist. Um, somebody sent me a, a thing I might cover in a future show or not today. I'll just give you a little quick thing. There was a, a council member of Dallas City Council. So this is Texas, the place where this... But Dallas is full of freaking yuppies, by the way, and morons. Uh, which is why I don't spend much time on the Dallas side of the Metroplex. And uh, a lot of people on the Dallas side of the Metroplex tend to stay, spend a lot of time on the Fort Worth side. wonder why. Maybe this will make sense. So they have a law in Dallas City limits that adults must wear a helmet when riding a bicycle. Not a motorcycle, a bicycle. And this lady basically said, while I realize that adults have the right to be foolish, I think that government officials have the responsibility to prevent them from doing so. See, you say, well, that lady's not Tamara Lane. Yeah, you know why? She doesn't have the power to be. As soon as you start deciding how other people are supposed to live their lives, you're on a pathway to figuring out who just shouldn't be here anymore, whether it's through a gulag or a prison or being ostracized or being split off in a splinter group of poverty or whatever it is. Government uses all of those weapons to divide and to control. And again, whenever anybody brings the point to me how great government can be, again, I want you to find me anyone... It would be in the top list of 100 murderers from history that wasn't government. Just one out of the hundred. I dare you. It's a long research project to f make that list of 100. Verify it. I know how it's going to come out in the end, though. Government, 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 government. So even though I'm a realist and I don't think we can have a stateless society tomorrow morning or anything, I think that if government inherently leads to death and destruction, we should have as little of it as possible, as little of it as we can live with, with reasonable order and safety in society. And uh, telling adults you have to wear a helmet when you ride a bicycle, that's more government than we need. And people of Dallas, you guys kind of deserve what you're getting over there because you keep putting idiots like that in the office. Anyway, with that, let's get into a little bit more interesting and a much more fun subject. Again, this guy is great. I... He's one of those guys, you get the the guest application, and you read, you know, there's a, enough material here and all, but I don't think this guy's really listened to a lot of shows or anything, and I don't know if he really knows what we're doing, and he might get on the air and be done in five minutes or something. How is this going to work out? And it's like, wow, I mean, I wish we had found this guy a long time ago. Tim is awesome, and he is a wealth of knowledge. And uh, I think that after we, you listen to this, some of you guys with bigger pieces of land that are running some cattle or sheep or whatever may want to think about doing a little bit of bison activity yourself. And uh, I'll tell you what, I think, uh, I think this is really a show that, again, I wish we'd done it a long time ago, but I'm glad we finally got to do it. And with that, let me say, hey, Tim, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be here, Jack. Hey, could you start out? I always ask every guest to do this for me. Just tell us how you came to be in the world of ranching buffaloes. Because um, generally, little kids in fifth grade don't sit there and say, hey, when I grow up, I want to 
on a buffalo <laughs> ranch. So I would say that it's more likely that a fifth grader want a ranch buffalo than a lot of other things we talk about. <laughs> yeah, um, I get asked that question a lot. Um, so I uh, started out, uh, you know, a farm kid, then went, uh, you know, pursued a career in cattle. Went to school for cattle. I've got a small degree. Um, that's accredited, a uh, livestock technology degree, and I've got uh, multiple PhDs from the University of Hard Knocks. Uh, but at one point in my career, I got exposed to bison. And uh, by the way, we use those two terms interchangeably, uh, buffalo and bison. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, been lucky ever since. Uh, I can apply a lot of the knowledge base from cattle to bison, but with a twist. And that's what I specialize in helping folks right now is understanding that uh, even though they're a bovid, there's just a couple of little tricks that are a little different to them. Uh, you know, on that, um, cattle range from some that are really hard to manage and deal with that are kind of, uh, I don't know, they have an attitude problem, uh, to really mm -hmm. docile, easy to manage cows. And I think bison have a reputation of being this big, hairy, giant, ornery beast and they're they're hard to raise hard to manage is that true no uh the opposite is um what and this is another thing that's every day at the office for me um the you go on youtube uh at our website uh and you will see a youtube video uh or i mean go on our website and look for the youtube link under our bison slash buffalo page and it's uh a two-year-old uh, bison that I studied, you know, behaviors and actually even verbalizations with. She was a wild calf out of Colorado. And she's on this proof of her being intelligent enough to fetch a ball. Okay. <laughs> she does multiple tricks and fetches the ball. And of course I did, uh, uh this, this tells you how, uh, you know, probably dysfunctionally dedicated I am <laughs> to the species, but, I knew they had an intelligence level, and and this fetching the ball was all based on positive reinforcement only, and her uh, actually associating that behavior performance with uh, a reward of a handful of grain, and she'll do it to this day out in the back pasture with a calf at her side, and so I mean you know every bison out there is potentially like Trixie. And where are there, there are some jerks in, in the species, like they're all, are all species, including us. 99.9% uh, .9 of them are very easy to have on the property if you do it their way. And, uh, they're very manageable if you do it their way. And one of the things I specialize in as a consultant is trying to help folks understand what that means by doing it their way. So uh, as opposed to cattle, you ask the buffalo to do what you need them to do rather than tell them to do what you need them to do. Hmm. If you'll just switch it around like that, they'll do it for you every time. And handling them is very easy if you're set up for them, which is not about strength. It's about behavioral triggers. But what you – I'm going to digress to your question because you hit it on the head. They have a reputation, and it's more of a perception than a reality about them. Okay, and you know, of course, it is fun to think of them as Burlington Northern on on hooves, and you know, ultimately, um, and intrinsically destructive, and they're not. I mean, uh, 
it, it's almost laughable once people get started in bison production and are used to having them around coming out of the cattle business. They're like, in fact, I was on a consulting trip to Abilene uh, just yesterday to a guy that does a very good job of managing his, managing his place, his property. Buffalo looked good, and he asked me point blank. He said, have you ever had buffalo out? And I said, uh, no, not one time. And he said, well, neither have I. And he said, everybody said I'd have a hard time keeping them in. So that's one of the messages I bring. Now, I will say that they're not for everybody. So a person has to be willing to understand what their way is, you know, and it's very easy to learn, but it's a difference between cattle and them. You know, there's something you, you brought up there that's going to, you're going to sound like I'm going off in left field, but I'm really not. Okay. Uh, I just kind of want your thoughts on it. I was just recently reading Mark Shepard's book on restoration agriculture, and he didn't talk about anything about buffalo. He's talking about different animals you can move through a system. And he was talking about how horses have their own unique things about them that you have to handle them different than any other animal. And this might play back to bison because it, it might be the same type of thing. But the, the sheep, the goats, the cattle, you can move them with dogs because the dog to them looks like a predator and they have this love-hate relationship and they'll move out. But if you try to move horses with the dogs, the mares will move the foals off and the stallions will come out and kill the dog. Um, because mm-hmm. they just don't work that way. And I guess, you know, I've been around animals my whole life. I've r- ridden horses my whole life. I guess I knew that, but I never really thought about it that way, that, that certain animals just have certain components to their instinct, and they just have to be not – that doesn't make them hard. It just makes them different. Right, yeah. Each, each species is just a little bit different. What you're going to find, though, from my perspective in the uh, – Exotic species that are available to us in our land use strategies, like cattle and horses. <laughs> uh, sorry, My, yeah, okay. And <laughs> I get yes, funny is, actually. Yeah, is that? Uh, oh, yeah, and people just know that's going to come out of me all the time. You know, all my cow ranch and buddies and everything else. But anyway, uh, so what those animals have a little less of is instinctual hardwiring. Okay. Compared to bison, which are, when you're looking at bison, and this is one of the allures of them and one of the things that is adding to their popularity, you're seeing a pristine version of pre-Columbian grazers right there. They have not been uh, bred and selected to get along with us like cattle and horses. You know, they've been work- we've been working on cattle breeds for at least 2,000 years, you know, Bison have been working on their thing for, well, if you want to go back and far enough, uh, you know, 250,000 years, but we always use 10,000 years. And, you know, what you're seeing in a little set of five cows in a bull is the same thing Cabeza de Vaca saw in 1525, which is the first documented uh, sighting of bison in the New World in a place we know as Galveston, Texas. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's cool stuff, you know, but, uh, and of course I'm into them, but, so <laughs> I, I like the cool factor, but the truth is the coolest part of bison, you know, and, uh, that's where we get, we as a community in the bison, we're always trying to let people know what the truth is because it's way cooler than anything you could make up, you know, so. Yeah. Now, we have this vision of, you know, pre-industrial America 
during the frontier days and the huge herds mm-hmm. of buffalo, 50 million buffalo roaming all over the place. And I, mm-hmm. I imagine there's a lot of truth to that. But there's also because of that, people think of buffalo as needing, you know, a million acres or something like that. So it's, and you just talked about a small, a small breeding herd there. With stuff like that, how much land does a person really need to be able to to raise buffalo in any meaningful way? As a consultant, I'm bound to accurately tell you that uh, the animal unit requirements of a bison, so far as we know scientifically, are the same as cattle. Okay. And an animal unit represents their body weight, and it's uh, one unit is based on a thousand pounds of body weight that requires. X number of pounds of actually point or uh, two and a half percent of that value in dry matter, which is what your land will produce and feed minus the water it's carrying. Okay. If your cow weighs 1400 pounds, she becomes a 1.4 percent of an animal unit. And when her calf reaches a juvenile state and weighs about 600 pounds, then that animal becomes uh, 0.6% of an animal unit. And if you got a bull weighing a ton, you have two animal units. Okay. So how much land do you need? It depends on what your land will produce. Okay. Now, I've been tracking permaethos a little bit and looking. I love what it's all about. I happen to have a basically a food plot experiment with a herd of bison on it that are very productive and very happy and very healthy. And without sacrificing or pushing the biology of my land holding, I am keeping in good, healthy, and productive uh, herd at the rate of six and a half animal units on seven acres. But I employ food plot technologies, okay? I'm, I'm working on when I can native, uh, you know, in the case of gamma grass, I'm saving all the gamma grass I can. I, I work on native restoration zones, and then my buffalo have to eat. So in the cool season, I employ things like, uh, you know, planting oats and ryegrass and arrowleaf clover and red-top turnips and something for them to eat. You know, sure. And, oh, that makes sense. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, but I reject, I've got a Hippocratic oath on my land. Okay. So, and it's my own personal choice. I'm not saying it's righter than anybody else or more right or anything else, but I only spend money on things that continue to work for me after I apply them. So I only work on plants that have the ability to regerminate. I only add sugar. Perennial self-receding annuals that, that do well in your yep. garden. Yep. And, and organic matter and sugars. And, yep. you know, if I need to kick a crop off, I might use some straight urea that is not going to have a negative impact on my little helpers out there that I can't even see with the naked eye. You know, so. But that's, I, I, I have fun doing that on my property. And uh, and I have a consultant that helps me with all that. And it's just my specialty is bison. And so some of the recommendations I have to fit in with my knowledge of what will. And we're constantly in a state of experimentation on what the bison will productively interact with. You know, and uh, by productively, it's got to sustain itself. That's a big deal. You and know, just so I can understand uh, a little bit more about, and for our audience, so they can understand a little bit more yeah. about your 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 stocking density. Where where exactly is that land located? Because different climates are way different in their ability to support animals. 
Sure, that's exactly right. My property is in North Texas, so I get uh, medium precipitation. In Gainesville, Texas is where I'm located. Oh, gee, you're my neighbor. You're only an hour and a half away from me. (laughs) And I think North Texas is a cool place. There's just lots of diversity available, you know, and... uh, for it's some reason, I had in my head that you were down by New Braunfels or something like that. So I don't know why, but, uh, but that's cool though. So that 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 puts me right in. I understand exactly the numbers you're using now because your climate and my climate are the same. You just probably have more mm-hmm. dirt before you get to rock than I do. Uh, <laughs> so are yeah. you? You're doing some sort of a paddock shift management at that type of density. You don't just have you know six and a half units of buffalo roaming free on seven acres. No, it's roaming free. I distract them with different plants coming up. I would like to be able to rotate, um, and I may split my pasture and be able to supply rotation uh, function for them. But right now, I'm actually getting that done without rotation. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But I'm a more is better guy, so when I seed, I seed plus 20%. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah. if it calls for 30 pounds of sugars per acre, I'm going to put in 40. You know, so... and. Um, so far as I can tell, my land is uh, not only productive, but it's happy. Well, it sounds it like you're doing almost like a free tra- choice rotation like I'm doing with my birds. I'm doing chickens this way. By putting what they want where I want them, they go there to the exclusion of other places. So exactly. the fencing's exactly. expensive infrastructure, and we're slowly increasing that. And it's really expensive for me because i got about 10 inches of dirt before I hit a slab of rock. So putting a fence post in the ground is, is, is more complicated than not. Um, but I think that, that I think we both probably agree if you can do that, you can get better land management and better results. Yeah. And you know, it works sometimes for me. Uh, I mean, I wish I had a migratory corridor and, you know, 10,000 acres. I would love to have that to work with. I don't. So I'm making what I have work as well as I can. That's actually cool because we have so many people that come on and, you know, they're doing a big operation and, you know, the average person thinks, well, this doesn't apply to me because I I can't do that. So seven acres is doable um, for a lot of people can can find seven acres of land. Now, there's this image of the buffalo and Yellowstone and, you know, they're the last place that they roam free and all. I mean, I've got buffalo (laughs) literally four miles, four and a half miles from me that are part of this wildlife refuge over here. So I know that's not the case. My question, though, is how how widespread are buffalo now in the hands of private keepers? And given that they are an animal that went to the brink of extinction, has been brought back, do you need any kind of a special permit to be able to keep buffalo? There's certain When I was a reptile keeper, there were certain reptiles, if I wanted them, I had to have a federal permit to be able to keep a snake. Uh, so if you wanted to get into buffalo ranching, can you just go out and buy buffalo, or do you have to have some kind of permit? Are they legislated like a game animal? I mean, how's that all work? Right, and that's a great question. Uh, so, first of all, I'll take you back to the the beginning of your question with Yellowstone. This is uh, something that a lot of people don't realize. I mean, you know, back uh, one of the reasons for the big species bottleneck was, you know, it was economy number one. Uh, back then, the buffalo hide was worth the equivalent of quite a bit of money today to people that were just trying to carve out a spot to be, you know, so that in Europe was the big pull on the hides. Um, And then we had subjugation of the Native Americans. That was a military thing. And we had, because of the cattle drives, uh, some 
evidence to support that there was some disease issues that came up with the cattle through the, the cattle drives that affected the herds as well. Big part of the story is where what we have now started from. And the reports go from 200 to 748 to between 1,000 and 1,500 head total bison in North America that we started with. And these days we report just under 500,000. Okay. Wow. In, in government herds or, uh, how else do I put it? Public herds. Okay. That number is about 20,000. The rest of it's the rancher. And the rest of it's the consumer that helps that rancher bring this animal back onto the American landscape because they love the product. So enough of a commercial, but I mean, that's true. I mean, the, the consumer is a, is a uh, bison restoration partner when they, when they go and participate in the economy of it. Back to, but that herd in Yellowstone started with 25 animals. A lot of people don't realize that either. And contributions from Texas were included in that original herd. And so, but, uh, from ranchers. Okay. And then what happened? It started with the public herds, uh, and a few ranchers. And then private people purchased their bison from public herds. And so now what you have in the ranching community that is 95% of the species population is the genetic remnants of that that beginning less than a thousand. And they're doing great. Their, their body sizes are increasing. They're under management. So they're very healthy. And that's all bison need to be a better and better animal. <laughs> With regard to lead, uh, regulation, there are no permits required other than trafficking permits depending on the state. And that's all the responsibility of the receiver. Okay. So. In Texas, we're free-free, which means free of brucellosis and free of tuberculosis, uh, bovine tuberculosis, officially. So uh, we have no issues with our bison being suspect of any traceable disease issues, okay? And if a receiving state outside of Texas, um, you know, uh, has a requirement on bison different than cattle, then we have to go jump through all the hoops in order to transfer bison to that other state. Um, you know, and if another state outside of Texas has issues like that, then we've got to comply to the, to what is, as a matter of rule, uh, required from that state into Texas. Other than that, all of the regulations are the same as cattle. Wow. And so in, as opposed to setting up a complete standalone regulatory uh, reality for bison, what they do is they use cattle regulation requirements or mandates, and then if there are any special considerations for bison, then they go from there and add those to that as a matter of rule. And that's one of the things I help people with, too, because if you call into the office and you say, hey, I'm thinking about getting bison, uh, how does the state think of them? You might get an answer as wild as, uh, you know, the um, flying purple people eater. You know what I mean? And so I know how to <laughs> go back and call and get that second and third answer and get to the top and and facilitate 
you know, people being able to, <laughs> you know, not have to wear hazmat suits to, you know, bring on their first herd of bison on their place. I'm flying out to Alabama uh, next week to start a group up. I just got back from North Carolina, and I'm scheduled to do a trip to New Zealand to help a bison rancher. But uh, so every state's a little bit different. But in Texas, uh, except for a couple of derogations, you know, we're considered cattle as a matter of mm-hmm. rule. So if I wanted to buy a, a buffalo from you and you wanted to sell it to me, you would just pretty much truck it down here to my land and boom, done, and it's over. And, and yeah. A handshake and a payment. And we go outside the state, then we got to deal with the other state. Well, and but if that was a mature animal, I would have to have a uh, state put tag in it. It would have to meet with, uh, as a mature animal, it would, just like beef cattle, it would have to be registered with the state with a number. Okay. So, but, and that's the same, uh, that's for reasons of traceability. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Sure, that makes so, sense. but that only applies to mature animals. But, uh, so, but uh, it's interesting you say it that way, and it's another chance to educate here. Uh, if you called me and wanted to buy one bison, I would uh, say, you know, I'm not being judgmental, but we don't do that. I understand. They exactly. got to go out like in a group. Go. Yeah. You yeah. know, so, and a small group is okay, but they got to have, they got to have some semblance of a herd to be behaviorally healthy so that we're fostering positive things instead of negative things. There's definitely other animals that fit that, that distinction. You know, goats are like that. Sheep are like that. Geese. If you see a goose by itself, it is a, it is an upset animal. There's something wrong with a goose. If it's by itself, it can even be with ducks, but it better have something to be with it. You know, healthy mind, healthy body. You know, yeah. and uh, they they need uh, they need their behaviors, you know, uh, supplied. So when I was in school, we were taught, and and I know this is BS because I've eaten a lot of lot of bison in my life, um, but we were taught that the reason that they just killed the buffalo, took the hide, and let everything lay, was that buffalo were were just not good to eat. Um, and that, that somebody had experiment with a beefalo to try to make them palatable or whatever, and it was just nonsense. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, it's complete nonsense. But for people who have never tried it, and you brought up a very good point, the consumer is a partner with restor- restoration of this animal because we can't, I mean, there's like the nature tree hugger lover to the point of absurd, that well, we should put it back the way that it was. Well, we, we can't put it back the way that it was. We have barbed wire and roads and no apex predators, so... We can't just put 50 million buffalo and let them roam from the Dakotas down to Texas again. It has to be done with ranching and management and control. So that consumer is critical to that because I'm not going to grow something as a grower unless I can make money with it. So how can Mm -hmm. people kind of graduate to consumer then at least on this and and, and find buffalo meat? Where can you find it to try it if you don't – like I actually have it here at – we occasionally have it at Kroger, and it's always at World Market. Uh, But Mm – for some people, I think it's kind of hard to find. Where do you find buffalo? Well, uh, Whole Foods, Natural Market, HEB, Walmart, believe it or not, uh, Safeway, um, Tom Thumbs here in Texas. I don't know how widespread Tom Thumbs are, but, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm being illegal saying their actual business names, but I know that those people carry bison. I think uh, anything that's offered through those um venues or you know locations as you can trust um the brand that i would tell you you could really trust that i'm aware of uh 
or have a lot of knowledge of how they do what they do is great range bison. And if they, if you look for that label, I think they'll have a positive experience. Um, you know, the consumer being a partner has, uh, there's two reasons for that. They come to the table, they come to the product because of the health, uh, the nutritionals. Okay. Uh, the healthy qualities that the product has, they come back because of the taste. I'd concur a hundred percent. It is, it you is know, the best yeah. meat I've ever eaten. Honestly, if I have a choice yeah. between beef and buffalo, I, I will go <laughs> that route any any day. Um, especially well, how many times right? you've been at a restaurant and have somebody get up and say, "Man, that tasted healthy." Have you ever heard that? <laughs> I figured, man, that tasted good. Um, but I mean, I think that another thing with Buffalo is that there are people that I call meat killers and I don't mean in the way like they slaughter animals. I mean, they destroy meat and the number one mm-hmm. way to kill meat is to overcook it. And I think yep. people get crazy when it's anything other than a cow and go worse with that. And a, a, a nice piece of medium Buffalo is just, it's amazing. It's, oh, yeah. And it's velvety and buttery in texture. I'm sure you know what I mean, but yep. it, it's, yep. You get a, a buffalo steak if it's properly handled and cooked that that has the quality that you know a, a piece of premium beef that was dry aged for six weeks has. It's 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 pretty yep. outstanding stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. You know, and it's not just because that's what I choose to do with myself, but I mean, you know, it's just oh, that taste is just unbelievable. You know, and. Uh, but anyway, so that is what brings the consumer back on a on a steady basis. And, uh, you know, there's lots of kind of holiday opportunities to uh, to try the product. You know, they're specific to buy wheat in Texas. We have a Texas Bison Week. That hmm. is the first week in May every year, okay? Senator Estes, uh, this last round, um, made it that... Uh, you know, in place through the year 2022. Really? I, I did not be, know that. How'd I miss that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, I, it's, it's about getting the message out. And so, you know, because we're such a small community, we're always struggling with how to get the bison message out, you know, and, uh, and so I really value this opportunity, uh, for that. But, uh, the big message here is, is that, well, don't forget about every Wednesday. I mean, for God's sake, that's hump day. You know what I mean? That's a good holiday. <laughs> but uh, it's funny. You got you know, we're, you got... About, we're talking on a Tuesday. This will air on Wednesday, so that's great. <laughs> cool. Today's the day, right? Yeah, that's right. So let's okay. talk about the market, the market value a little bit. Like, you know, how does it compare to beef, and and does it have additional product that maybe beef doesn't normally have? I mean, I think bison uh, hides are maybe more valuable in the market than than uh, than a cow hide, maybe just because there's less of them available. But I mean, what's the market like for someone that would say, well, do I put cattle on this land or do I put bison on this land? Right. Um, okay, live animal markets, what you're talking about, it's all based on their meat value, um, which we have not always been able to say, but now we can. And so the live animals are going to be somewhere from 2 to over $3 a pound live weight, okay, depending on what you get. And, of course, you can spend more for the county fair, you know, the big something that's special, you know. Yeah. I think they're all special, but you know what I'm talking about, you know. 
extremely uh, beneficial individuals to the species or to you know your your production model. Um, but uh, the meat uh, is more expensive than beef. Uh, it costs more to grow than beef, um, but it's you know the meat is quite a bit more expensive. Its nutrient density puts it on par with beef or pretty close as a value and it's iron content and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, the, the, obviously, you know, I, uh, help people get their first buffalo and there are other people out there that can help with that. We tend to be a little bit stuck up about how people get started so that it's a positive experience. But, uh, um, you know, the animals, you know, have a, um, a balance in their value as animals and that balance is then reflected in the value of the meat. I would like to also say that there are lots of opportunities to buy meat or meat animals directly from producers. And uh, I think 40% of the sales of meat in the U.S. are direct from the producer. And at either a farmer's market or knowing a producer, having one in your locality, you know how to connect with a producer, at Fraser Bison, we have an infrastructure of producers in different localities, so we can offer people the ability to buy a slaughter animal directly, you know, and uh, and thereby, uh, you know, where my what I do when I'm not here on my seven acres doing having fun with that is I facilitate the success of multiple herds around the state of Texas and the United States. That's awesome, and I I, I prefer when possible to buy from a producer directly and I prefer that people sure. do as well because it puts it puts more money in the pocket of the producer exactly. and it forms a relationship and in the end it usually costs the consumer less because the middleman's gone. And oh, even yeah. if it was the same, frankly I'd buy from the producer even if it was a little bit more because I'm more concerned about that producer being there tomorrow than I am whether or not Walmart or H E B is gonna be there tomorrow. Well, and you know, the ear tag number of that buffalo, you know, maybe where that producer was born. You know, you know about your food when you do yep. that. Now, I will say that, you know, the whole thing is an ecology of, of moving pieces and we desperately need what I call the corporate response so that small producers can rely on them on the way to developing their direct sales program. Yeah, absolutely, because it, it it's nice to know I could sell this animal and and make I don't know three dollars a pound, but it's it's good to know that if I can't find that market, let's say I know I can sell it for at least two fifty, right? That yeah. that that makes and that makes everything easier, including obtaining financings with an ag loan and things like that, because with that established market. I can go in when I'm applying for finance or something with a business plan and say, this is my this is my bottom end, this is my baseline, and this is my upside. And that's a very compelling argument to someone when you're seeking financing or if you're working with someone is with private financing that would say, you know, I'll, I'll basically there's people out there you call them like angel investors. I'm sure they exist in ag too that help somebody get off the ground. That's a compelling case. I think I can is not as compelling. And it's it's also harder for that person to take all the risk and effort that it takes to get something started up yeah. and then not be sure what am I going to do with these things when I have, you know, 20, you know, thousand pound plus animals running around and eating more food every day past their point of re being ready to harvest and I ain't got a buyer. Exactly. And then another service that I provide here is I pool 
animals so that we're offering them as a larger group. Okay. And those animals are usually uh, oh, worth premium you. if I am uh, involved in the management of those animals. I you know, see. So, so if, I'm a, if I'm a big buyer and you're like, I got two buffalo, and I'm like, no. But I, but I would be interested if you had 25 or 30, you're pulling the multiple small producers together into one harvestable herd. That's awesome, man. And that's, well, and, and I've got a, uh, I've got a, you know, relationship of trust with the producers because I, you know, I'm their help. I mean, I'm there to make them money when I provide wow. those services. And so they, uh, this, I just shipped out Sunday a load of 50 buffalo or 40 buffalo. And some of them were finished bulls weighing 1200. You know, they were a little cranky too, but it's all right. We got, we know what we're doing here. <laughs> and, but it represented three producers that trusted me with their animals and their marketing. Yeah. And I, I, I locked horns and fought for them every step of the way and got them the, the best price, you know, for their animals. So, See. or I can just buy them here and, uh, you know, write a check. But I obviously have to make a living, so when I do it that way, then I cannot give them the price I could get them, if you understand what I'm sure, saying. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, because yeah. you're not sure at the, of the other side of the deal yet, so you have to leave yourself some extra room. Mm-hmm. What a great way for people out there that are trying to figure out how, because I keep telling people, build something of your own. Build something of your own. Do not rely on a job. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are interested in getting into agricultural stuff, and even if it's not bison. That concept of having multiple small producers that you're kind of like an agent for, so to speak, you got to know what you're doing. You got to have, you know, the, the, the market connections and the marketing connections. But that's an incredible niche that, so, because you couldn't make a living raising, you know, six and a half units of, of buffalo. No. You're not going to make, you're not going to pay all the bills with that. But by extending your reach with that, and there's tons of niche opportunities throughout so many different species and so many different uh, product, production models that oh, yeah. they can be emulated in. That's incredible. Well, and it's, okay, it begins with my mission to always, um, when you take, you should leave. Okay, it's been, I've been taught that since I was a little kid in agriculture, you know, and and now that I'm doing agriculture the way I'm doing it, it's even more true that you never take something without leaving something. So, you know, that's why I try to be as positive of an organism, if you will, out there for everybody that is going to dedicate to this species with some land and make it work for them because then we really are restoring the species rather than just uh, harvest them as producers, you know, so... <laughs> Could, could a, we talk about like for direct sales, what the regulations are there? I know that the answer, based on what you've said far, is probably going to be the same as cattle, but yeah. a, not, a lot of people are not going to know what that means. So, if you are a, a buffalo rancher and you're raising, I don't know, thirty a year, and you're able to sell through direct marketing, do you have to set up a relationship with a, a, a USDA slaughterhouse? Can you do your own processing? Is there a limit on how much you can do before you have to use? A slaughterhouse, do you have to take a model like in Virginia with the cattle? What they do is I sell you the cow, but then I transport it for you down to the slaughterhouse, and then you pay me for a service based on the produced weight. There's there's ways they get around the regulations. You know, here in Texas, for instance, mm-hmm. what are how is that how's that managed? Uh, that's another great question. Uh, uh, there's a couple of different ways to look at that for somebody interested in in maybe considering this. Um, the the first best way to do it, in my opinion, is the way I do it, 
uh, I stay out of direct sales of like, you know, 10 pounds of this and 20 pounds of that. Okay. Uh, what I do is I sell a meat animal. Okay. And I make sure that, you know, and I include in the price delivery and I handle the animal until it's dispatched because, you know, the, the average, uh, slaughterhouse is not familiar with the animal enough to handle them in a humane, thus productive way because, you know, uh, I'm an advocate of humane husbandry because it always makes more money. Okay. Yep. But I also like being nice to them just this way I am. But, uh, so, so I stay, I guarantee to the customer that I stay with their animal until it is not sensible anymore. Meaning they're, they're rendered senseless. Okay. Yep. And, and my process is I go directly from the trailer to the knock box. So that animal comes from where it was grown. To that trailer to tall grass, if you will. Okay. Yep. And then the rest of it, then after that point, and the inspectors say this is a this is a healthy carcass, I'm out. They own me for the hot weight only. Okay. And then they call in their cutting orders. They take over at that point. Okay. And I just but what's cool about the way I do it, and I think people can make enough money doing this. And give the customer a good deal because I'm selling the, the hot carcasses to them at a wholesale level. And just like the, the, the major guys would pay for them by the semi load, I make that available to the, the, what we call locker bison customers. Okay. And now I think that's the simplest, safest, best way to be in it at first. A lot of people really enjoy getting their own label and and direct marketing retail meat, mm -hmm. okay? And that is for them to enjoy doing and be part of, and I, I applaud them for it. But they've got to go through all of the state and or federal regulations to be able to get their label approved and all of the, the labeling data on the, on, on the label has to be, you know, accredited, um, and then basically when they sell those retail cuts to a consumer, if uh, anything was to be wrong with that meat, it goes to them, so you should have insurance, okay? And where what I do is if it's in, under inspection, that those inspectors say that the, the processing of the animal and the further processing into meat product was under certification and it is, it is safe, okay? And so they've assumed that, liability at that point. Yeah, I'm out. I mean, I've done it and I've delivered a, and, and I can tell you, I've never had an issue. Yeah. Uh, not, not one time, you know, but so those are two different ways of doing it. I will say that in Texas, it's kind of interesting because we're in Texas as a result of a, a house bill called 641 that became a law. We're defined in the state in the ag code as wild and indigenous to the state, but it subsequently as a matter of rule allows for them to be produced, uh, for food and for, uh, preservation of the species. Okay. But we're, uh, inspected in the meat as exotic. So, hmm. you know, we're, we're, we've got some good footholds in the right places. I'm not going to get after them on the exotic term. You know, it's. Yeah, just, I uh, understand what you're saying yeah. there. Yeah. So just to be clear on your model, if I was your customer, I'd be writing two checks, one to you and one to the, the processor. And, and once, once that animal's gone to tall grass, 
Um, I'm at that point taking over, and I can say anything from I want it staked out to just give me the whole damn ribeye cut hole or whatever I want to do. I, I deal that with that with them. And uh, and my, like a follow up to that would be: Do you ever do things like where someone calls you and goes like, "I don't really need a whole one. I'd take a half one, put two customers together, let them split one." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes, we do that. And uh, and then it's just two sides, and one of them's owned by one guy, and they're probably only going to be five to ten pounds apart, if that, in weight. So they're sure. getting equal portions, you know. But you bet, I don't do quarters, but I'll do halves. You know. Yeah, halves but, but it's yes, you would be writing two checks because you'd be uh, taking care of the kill charge and the further processing and all that stuff at the plant, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I'm just selling to you on a on a wholesale reality for the hot hanging weight. Now, if I am representing, I've got eight bulls right now uh, from a location uh, near Houston that uh, you know will send to a plant in Belleville, Texas, and, you know, if I'm representing another producer's animals, then I put on 15%, and I help them move their fat class animals. Okay, sure. so, and we've got a program, uh, which is just me saying it more than anything else, but uh, those producers that we facilitate in that regard are Fraser Bison LLC approved meaning that they follow the codes of ethics that are in place. Um, it's a good producer. The customer's getting a quality carcass, um, and we have knowledge of that, so we approve those animals. But you asked me a question I got a fully answer, and one, and it was that, uh, you know, that you handle all of the communications with the slaughterhouse after uh, we, we finalize our business. I stay in the process as needed as a facilitator all the way through. I don't ever leave any of my customers. In other words, I'm I got you. So if I wanted some advice, if I wanted some advice on what I should have done, you 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 would help me out with that. And that that's cool. And yeah. that's that's not well. You're if you, if you're a customer, you're a partner. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I treat my customers as if they are partners in business. You know what I mean? And. uh um, I'm not running for nice guy of the year. I'm just, I'm thinking that is the right way on this fragile thing called bison that needs all the friends it can get to help it work better and better all the time. You know, how, so. how are they in relation to predator issues? I know a lot of cattle guys in Texas that do free range and, and paddock shift to have the cattle out there. We'll put a couple of livestock mm-hmm. guardian dogs with them and what have you, or are they just... You know, being there a wild animal, and we don't have wolves running around here. We got coyotes and bobcats. I mean, does an animal like that just get its gut stomped out if it bothers with a herd that's got a bull, or do they need protection? Um, that's another great question. You ask a lot of good questions. Um, they, we actually do have some wolves uh, in Texas, red wolves. You know, and uh, but they're not an issue with the bison. Coyotes are not an issue with the bison. Um, the black bears are not an issue with bison. We're, we do have an increasing population of uh, black bears all the time in Texas, which I think is good. Um, and But up north, the gray wolves, uh, timber wolves, and grizzly bears are the primary uh, predators that affect bison herds, and they're not all that successful, okay? Um, and it, uh, I've seen video evidence that it takes more than one grizzly bear to get a little red calf. And those are usually the ones that are in danger of being preyed on. Now, there's once in a while a wolf pack can get lucky. 
sure. and take somebody down. You know what I mean? And uh, but that's going to happen up in Montana. It's going to you know up up where they're at more. Okay. Well, what we do have, and I specialize in Southern Plains bison, uh, and uh, you know what we do have down here are cats, and that can be tricky for a herd to figure out the first time through. And the worst experience I've had with cats was with a pair of blacks that came through Burlington, Texas, and uh, buzzed a herd that uh, 485 head there, and uh, took two and a half calves. Hmm. And uh, yeah, when you say we cats, the, you're talking about cougars. Uh, no, on the blacks, I'm talking about jaguars. Oh, really? Yes, sir. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, the place I just got back from Abilene, they they've got a black spotted. Uh, the guy's wow. wife saw it crossing the road. I didn't know we had them this far north. I mean, I guess they're not this yeah. far north where you and I are, but but South Texas and West Texas has got jaguars. I've got a friend that runs a game operation in Oklahoma. They they spotted them up there. God, southeast Oklahoma. Yeah, and they're a really they're an amazing animal. Uh, you know, they're a pain in the butt when they're bugging your herd, but I mean, sure. as an animal, they're amazing. You know, but uh, I mean, they're in that location in Burlington. You know, the conventional wisdom was, you know, when the blacks are in the area because the cattle are very nervous and they're huddled up. And you'll find an occasional calf partial carcass up in a tree. That's jaguar activity. Just for everybody okay. out there, I'm on Google right now while he's talking, and he's not making this crap up. There, there's legitimate <laughs> black jaguars moved back into the United States. Wow. I mean, if I learned anything today, I learned that. I did. I was ready to call you out on pulling my leg. I, uh-huh. Wow. I'd have lost well, the reason I that bet. Uh, the reason I know uh, that it was a cat issue in Burlington, uh, number one, the, the guy, we leased 3,600 acres next to us, and the guy watching our bison uh, spotted uh, spotted the pair, okay? Mm-hmm. And then that, that half the calf we lost had uh, puncture holes over the top of its nose and under its chin. So that's a cat, that's a cat action right there. And but what was interesting for the buffalo to tell you how resilient they are to predation, um, we lost two calves, no no doubt about it, straight up slick gone. Okay, found parts of them. That half a calf was all that calf got, and we never saw the blacks again. Well, so I'm thinking count. the buffalo got tired of that black cat BS and uh, did something about it, and those cats decided that the buffalo were too much work after that. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, I could see one taking a calf, but a full-grown adult, especially a bull, I mean, how thick is the hide of a full-grown buffalo? Well, the bulls are real thick. The cows are, you know, it's a different kind of hide, and that's something that's really interesting. You know, they're a different species than cattle, and uh, their hide is a lot more porous. Uh, they use it for stirrup leathers on polo um, saddles because it'll stretch and regain its original the form, according to what I was told by the guy that had the leather deal with them for that. Uh, they use it for airplane seats. A lot of, I think Harley Davidson uses quite a bit of bison leather for some of their stuff. Um, and my personal experience with the leather was, uh, you know, I work out in the heat and, you know, regular set of gloves, you know, you're, you're going to sweat it up and they're all, they're a complete different color, you know, after about 
uh, for me sometimes one day out there, you know. And I bought a set of buffalo gloves, and uh, there was never anything. I used them all summer long. There was never much of anything except a light sweat across the stitching at the wrist because it the the leather breathed well. Okay, is all is the only thing I can think of. And so, if you think about it logically, that leather and that hide is more porous because they have at least twice as many hair follicles per square inch than cattle. They have two hair coats, and that's one thing that makes them very ecologically positive um, is the two hair coats that bison have. And a lot of people don't realize that they shed their winter coat. And, and I mean, they're very resilient in the winter storms, and they're very resilient during the heat. Um, and they're just, they're made for North America, but the birds, that, that, that's there, unique too, because cattle generally, you sacrifice one to the expense of the other. If you get mm-hmm. cattle that do really good in the heat, they're going to have trouble in the cold to a degree. And if you get really cold hardy cattle, they're going to suffer in the heat, especially right. more modern breeds and things like that compared to some like the old Devons and stuff. Those are, those yeah. are about as they're about as close as a cow gets to a buffalo that there is. But I mean, most of the cattle <laughs> people are raising today, they just yeah. they they're gonna suffer. It's which I mean, it's with everything we've domesticated. You get a bird that does, like a chicken that does really good in the heat, and it's you know a white leghorn. It didn't go like a New England winter, and you right. get something like a, a a buff Orpington, and it's out in the heat without shade, it'll fall over and die. Yeah. Uh, but that buffalo that or bison, we keep using the term interchangeably, and we'll we'll yeah. cover that in a second. But that animal was made to live from Texas to Canada, which oh, yeah. is well, every every bit of temperate climate you can find, from dry to wet to cold to hot, you name it. That animal was meant to be there. You got it. I mean, they are anointed by science as the most successful large mammal on the planet uh, among the native species. I mean, you it's call them the ultimate place. survivalist, right? Yes. <laughs> they even survived us, man. Yeah, you know? that's so. <laughs> survived man, you're doing all right. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. So, can we talk about that? The difference in buffalo and bison. When we're talking about true buffalo, we're talking about an animal that's that's not native to the United States, at least not in modern times. Uh, like a Cape buffalo is a, is a true buffalo, to my knowledge, anyway. And a, and a, a, a North American buffalo or a bison really isn't the same animal as that buffalo, correct? That is correct, and uh, I've heard it, uh, you know, accurately put that, uh, you know, the difference is old world versus new world. Okay, mm. so uh, you know, you got water buffalo there, a true, you know, bugalus bugalus is a true buffalo, uh, Cape buffalo or true buffalo, uh, American bison or North American bison. Um, you know, they they are uh, commonly referred to as buffalo, which I understand is a French word in its origin, but. Uh, the uh and this means hairy ox and um uh, but it it actually there was some research accomplished to you know up and down the street of New York and they showed them a picture of a bison they said what is that and most people would say it's a buffalo sure you know so uh but what we do with those two terms i mean it's kind of uh what do you call it um uh modern uh like vernacular, like it's like pop, pop, vernacular, whatever slang term, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. But we we talk. like to say help <laughs> save the buffalo by bison. So a lot of times we'll call the animal buffalo and the product bison. But right. the animal is 
American bison. Are there any other bison, or is it a unique no. animal? I mean, whoa. no, we've got a European bison, uh, Highland and a Lowland, um, and it's called a Weasant. And there's, uh, I, I don't know if this is okay to do or not, but I mean, <clears throat> every once in a while, an article will show up in our. Um, we do a free newsletter. We want everybody oh, go ahead, to know man. Can, everything. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, anything, man. Yeah, it's uh, uh, called the Buffalo Drum News, and it's my wife's project, and it's uh, www.allaboutbison.com. All you got to do is click on there and want it. Every month, you'll see everything that made the news about bison that's not a sales pitch, okay? okay. And uh, everything from bison jams in Yellowstone to restoration efforts of the, the European bison known as Weasant. Uh, you know, over there, um, and, you know, market news, meaning, uh, you know, there are, you know, articles about ranches raising them and stuff like that. And the reason we do that and, and the allaboutbison.com website is not our website, but it's, uh, my wife does a lot of historical stuff in there. Uh, just information center is what we hope it ends up, you know, a credible information center is what we want it to be. For folks with an interest, whether they're a consumer and they're just interested in the animal or whatever, you know, we our readership uh, is fairly small, and but we've got readers from Japan and New York, a lot of them out of New York and uh, Europe, Africa, you know, Asia, um, so and a lot in the United States. So we're just trying to do all we can for the buffalo that way. You know, well, you just got yourself a new subscriber from me. I did it while you was talking, and I, I, I imagine you might see a little bump there. We, we're reaching about ninety thousand people a day right now, so we, wow. uh, we're, 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 we're doing all right for a podcast. I think. And I think it's because we talk about stuff like this that you really don't get on mainstream radio. I mean, I, you, no. and to be fair to a radio host, I mean, they can't afford to bring a guy on and give them an hour, hour and fifteen minutes to talk about one thing on conventional radio. You got to yeah. play a sponsor's thing every five and a half minutes or something. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's awesome. And you've got, you know, you mentioned your other site. You want to go ahead and fill people on that one again and, and talk about what they can find there. It's FraserBison.com. Yeah, com or Google Bison Consultation, and then that'll get you right to our website. So, and... We hope it helps everybody that goes to it, and if we can help folks, we we're here to do that. You know, so a lot of information on there about. Uh, I'm big on only imparting uh, information that I can prove. You well, know, I like that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll put out information I can't prove, but I always qualify it with that. I'm like, I think yeah. maybe. Right, and then I'll say at other times like I know this works, right? And I think it's important yeah. that we delineate that way because I'm sure there's things you're experimenting with, and I always put out yeah. my experiments, and I also a lot of times put out my experiments, and like a year later go, don't do that, it doesn't uh-huh. work. <laughs> and if I can find somebody who already figured that out, it's a good shortcut too, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I never trust the person that say it, it says it won't work. I often trust the person that says it doesn't work because the difference is the guy that says it doesn't work watched it done or tried to do it and knows it won't work, where a lot of times the guy that says it won't work is just the guy that pees in your Wheaties saying, oh, that'll never work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Tim, let me tell you, this is one of the coolest interviews I've done in a long time, man. I really had a blast having you on. Um, given you're so close, I'd actually like to get up your way sometime soon with maybe a video camera and let people see what you're doing. 
Sure. Um, and I might be buying some meat from you or one of your friends because okay. uh, I uh, I have a fondness for anything that's red and used to walk around on four legs. Yeah, um, me too. I'm a, <laughs> yep, yep. And and, uh, and you know, me and you will have to have a conversation about biltong. I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a pretty useful way to take care of Buffalo. Anyway, man, thanks for being on with us today, and uh, I really appreciate you. Uh, if you get anything that comes up you want to come back on and talk about, just let us know. We'll have you back on, and, and thanks for being with us today. Well, I really appreciate it too, Jack, and, and keep doing the good work because, uh, you know, uh, we'll look into you more and more all the time, but what I see so far, I mean, it's positive. So I think, uh, I think uh, the society is evolving and uh, growing up, and I think uh, your messages are, are right on right on the spot. So thank you for your work. I appreciate that. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Tim Frazier helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Show you.